have a serious question. How many serial killers are there in the U.S.? Because TV has taught me that there's a new one every week. There's two on this podcast. But which two? Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Human Recommendation Algorithm, Andy Bowman, and with me are my co-hosts, Tessa Suela. Hello. And Dr. Sam Morris. Bond. James Bond. Morris? Sam Morris? This week, Tessa makes your heart go pitter-patter. She wants your liver on a platter. Sam flies off the Golden Gate Bridge on a dirigible. Okay, I I think that's the word, dirigible. An ice. Dirigible. Icy animal-human hybrids that might not be there. All right, Tessa, you have covered the big one this week. The one that uh, at least one listener is excited about. What is it? Our our one devoted fan. Our Ginger. most devoted fan. Second most devoted our fan. Our most devoted. Yeah, really second most devoted fan. I, I think that our, our most devoted fan title might be taken already. So I'm going to talk about Hannibal. I don't really have a fancy lead in for it because I talked about the Silence of the Lambs last week. And of course, according to Ginger's request, since she poked Andy on social media about watching Thunder Road. She wanted me to watch Hannibal. Here I am. Here's Hannibal. So more Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal Lecter all the time. Question. Oh, so it's Lecter. It's not the uh, the war general from ancient history. You know what? You would think that that Hannibal was the only one to cross the Alps on, on elephants, but actually it turns out Mad Mickelson has done the same thing. Would we say that on this podcast, that we are mads about Hannibal? I'm, I'm not going to respect that with an answer. <laughs> All right, so you're doing more Hannibal Lecter. Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. More, yes. He, he did earn that degree. And I was very curious about this show. It's been on my list for a while. Again, I always wanted to watch The Silence of the Lambs before I watched this, since it is... I mean, Silence of the Lambs is based on the Thomas Harris novel of the same name. However, I believe that the that the film is the one that has really brought this character and this idea into the popular consciousness, like I talked about last week. So I really wanted to watch that before I dove into the show, which has so many memes on the internet. If you've never heard of the show, I want to ask you, have you ever been on Reddit? Have you ever been on Twitter? Because I don't think you know what the internet is if you have not heard of this show. So many white girls, so many memes. And and I want to point out too, just really quickly, like you mentioned the fact that Silence of the Lambs, the film, is based on the book, and that is ultimately where we get interest in the property. Silence of the Lambs is the one book of the trilogy that has not been adapted as part of the Hannibal TV show. Yes, yeah, so this fits into the the this television show fits into the Thomas Harris verse as it were because it's adapting characters from the first book which I believe is called The Red Dragon, is that correct? Yes. It so it's adapting characters from that first book, some plot lines from that first book. And but it's it is different in terms of I, I believe so. I've not read the books. So I this is all conjecture on my part. Please correct me if I am wrong. Okay, I'm sorry. Sam, correct me if I am wrong. This is characters from the books, but it's not a one-to-one adaptation. It's not complete plot lines. So the deal with Hannibal the TV show is uh until we get to season three when the essential plot of Red Dragon is adapted, at least in part, what the show does is relies on characters from Red Dragon. However, the book 
Hannibal, the third book in the series that came out after The Silence of the Lambs film and then was also adapted into a film with Anthony Hopkins and Julianne Moore replacing Jodie Foster. Because Clarice is not a character in Hannibal, it's about the earlier character, they've stitched together things that happen in Hannibal to Clarice to the main character in Hannibal. So it's an odd mixture of those things with new stories and ideas as well. Sam, have you watched Hannibal? Uh, Four episodes. Just because I'm the one who has watched all of Hannibal here, I'll just go ahead and tell you really quickly some of the characters jump in, jump out. There are adaptations and moments from both both books, Dragon, uh, Red Dragon, and uh, uh, what is the other? Oh, Hannibal, of course. That's what the other one's called. But there's also, they throw in there, Hannibal Rising. That's right. So there are elements from all three books dispersed throughout really what I will call the good seasons. That is seasons two and season three. Uh, season one is more about the little things that were kind of mentioned casually throughout the books. Uh, little one-liners about how Hannibal, the serial killer, functioned when he was out and free. Little little details about his relationships with his clients, etc. But for the most part, the direct adaptations of the book are only about half of one season each. There you go. We are hoping for a season four that adapts... Uh, that properly adapts Silence of the Lambs, but we'll find out. Tessa, what did you think about it? So, Annie, I'm going to have to disagree with you. Andy keeps referring to the first season as the bad season, and granted, I haven't seen much of season two yet, but I actually don't think of it as that bad. Like, you're making it sound like it's the first season of Buffy, that you should just skip that season and and go on to, like, season two, but... I, I quite liked the first season of Hannibal, but Hannibal uh, ran from 2013 to tw- 2015. So like Andy said, three seasons. It is an NBC show, although Netflix claims it to be a Netflix original. Not sure what international copyright foolery Netflix is pulling here, but it's something like that. And remember, this is also, of course, not to be confused with the current CBS procedural that looks like it's a Silence of the Lambs adaptation, but is apparently just a branded CBS procedural Clarice. Right. This one, Hannibal, is adapted by Brian Fuller, who those of you might know from Dead Like Me, uh, Pushing Daisies. He produced Voyager and Deep Space Nine for you Star Trek fans. He did the first season of American Gods. I could talk on and on about the prestige of this particular television show. In fact, I probably will a little bit later when I start talking about some of the talent that's involved in the acting category. But like Andy said, this is this is a pretty simple setup based on characters we already know from Silence of the Lambs. So the basic premise of this first season is FBI criminal behavior... Blah. Let me start over. FBI criminal behavioral analyst Jack Crawford, who is played by Lawrence Fishburne in this particular adaptation, asks profiler Will Graham, played by Hugh Dancy, to join his team to help stop serial killers. However, Will Graham has an empathy disorder, which means that he can empathize so well with serial killers that sometimes he actually might think that he is them loses his identity a little bit, and so concerned about Will's mental health due to this empathy disorder, Jack enlists the aid of psychiatrist Hannibal Lecter, the the name of the the person who is the name of the series, who's played by Mads Mikkelsen. The season follows Will's descent into instability and Hannibal's fascination with him, and I feel like that's just the premise of the whole show, is those two ideas. But it is a lot of Will, it is a lot of struggle between Hannibal Lecter and Will, either knowingly or unknowingly for this first season. Obviously, Hannibal Lecter is a very respected psychiatrist. He he is not the same Hannibal Lecter that we saw in Silence of the Lambs. This is a much younger, this is a much more carefree. He has not been even suspected of any wrongdoing yet. He is very well-known and well-renowned. And so, We get to see not an origin story because he's already a serial killer, but we get to see how he sort of functions along with these other characters who are trying to catch other serial killers while they're still 
while he is under their nose, basically. This season of the show, and why I will always call it the bad season, is it feels the most network television of all these seasons. It is a very procedural episode, monster of the week, serial killer of the week type show. I disagree. Compared to the other seasons, it is. I mean, compared to the other seasons, maybe, but I was going to say this actually is a turn away from procedurals. Like some of the serial killers, there is this idea that, okay, there's this serial killer this week, but usually the serial killer arcs are solved over two episodes instead of one episode. And it's not actually interested in the crime. The serial killers that they, they track are just, they're just plot points for, for Hannibal and Will to sort of act out their fascination with each other. So for me, I mean, it, there's just not that same like whodunit feeling of a lot of procedurals in this at all. It is way more interested in creating a gothic atmosphere. It's interested in challenging what you know about these characters and what you know about reality way more than it is about actually catching or solving crime or forensics or anything like that. So for me, I have to disagree. I think, I mean, maybe it is more procedural compared to later, but it's still very much a step away from a show like Criminal Minds that's interested in like behavioral analytics and solving serial killer killings. So that's what I would think about it. Tessa, if you decide to go and watch the future seasons, you will like see that the studio has relinquished control to Brian Fuller over the time and you will it's it's an amazing difference the jump in quality which yes this this series this season is very good but it is still very bad compared to where the show goes it's always dangerous when people cede control to Brian Fuller um so I I was thinking about this because I've watched the first three or four episodes of this back when it was first released and at that time having an untreated sleeping disorder I couldn't stay awake to watch this show. Um, and one of the things that comes out of this discussion that you two are having that makes me think about is the fact that I was most able to easily watch television shows that followed a formula back then. And I'm starting to think maybe that's why I had such trouble with Hannibal because something else was going on other than that procedural. I don't know. I obviously haven't seen the entirety of season one or seasons two or three, but it does remind me of another show I haven't watched that has very that has a very, very rabid fan base that started off as a procedural but then became something else, Lucifer, which I know Tessa has seen and loved. Yeah, Lucifer has a very similar trajectory. Lucifer has a very similar trajectory. Have fun editing this, Andy. I will. Because it, it starts off as, it starts out very much as a procedural, which is very against the comics, but that was the only way they could get it made. But then as soon as they started on Netflix, they were like, yay, we're doing supernatural stuff now. We don't have to be a procedural anymore. So I, I think that that's interesting. I will say, talking about genre, this is a very different genre than Silence of the Lambs. I mentioned last week, Silence of the Lambs has a, a, the real feeling of a true crime genre. Even though it's not true crime, it feels like almost like a exploration into the psyche of a serial killer. This is much more gothic. This is interested in creating an atmosphere for you, a dark atmosphere. And it actively tries to pull you into Will's instability as he goes along. For Will, Will often sees hallucinations or visions of different things because he's so wrapped in his own thinking, trying to figure out who these serial killers are so he can catch them. And so he sees these different gothic images of murders. He sees images of stags, especially. That's a big thing in the first season. But what ends up happening is that sometimes he'll be in the middle of this sort of process that he goes through and something will happen and you will think, oh, this is just part of the hallucination. And then you'll realize that it's not. And it's it's really fascinating the way that Brian Fuller actively makes you question what's happening, but not in the same way that someone like uh, Stephen Moffat, who just tries to be like, I'm smarter than you and you don't know what's happening. It's more of just a like, you don't know what's happening because these main characters don't know what's happening. And so I, I thought that that was really, really interesting. I also think that Brian Fuller or whoever else came up with the idea for this show literally watched The Silence of the Lambs and heard the line, 
Uh, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti and went, ooh, what if we made a whole show that was just about food? Because Hannibal is a cannibal, obviously, but he has this fascination in this show with making like gourmet food out of his victims and then feeding it to other people. Well, maybe feeding it to other people. You don't know. I No, he is. I think by the mid-season, you know what's happening because you see him like preparing human lungs in the kitchen and like it it's like he it's so fascinating but like the food i was worried because there is a scene in the silence of the lambs that's very violent when it comes to hannibal and it's very grotesque and this show doesn't shy away from that at all but when it comes to the cannibalism that hannibal is participating in it sort of makes you uncomfortable because it's like this food looks really good like he's making this gourmet food which brings me to my other question how in the world does hannibal have enough time hours in the day to make this gourmet food from scratch including like his own beer like he just makes all of the stuff like he's like making his own butter and like sourcing his own like raw ingredients and i'm just like do you see two patients a day and then spend the rest of your time making food like it's a legit question he doesn't watch uh prestige tv tessa <laughs> it's like it's like fraser who has a four-hour radio show and that's it and i do want to say that almost every episode is named after some kind of food yeah which is very funny and this show also has a sense of humor. Um, it's not quite the same as Silence of the Lambs, but like there's one of my favorite scenes in the first season is where he has the dinner party. And like for the f- whole first part of the episode, you just see him killing person after person and like harvesting organs and packing them away in the refrigerator. And at, then at the end, he has this big dinner party where there's like a dozen people sitting at this table and they're all applauding him because the food looks so good. And he raises his wine glass and he says, I assure you, nothing at this table is vegetarian and there's just like this great like sense of dark humor that sort of underpins Hannibal as a character because he's very smart he's very psychopathic he is obsessed with Will because Will is the opposite of him Will has so much empathy that he loses his identity he's in danger of losing his identity but at the same time Hannibal can't help but sort of make these cracks, right? He like he sort of does that thing where he kind of wants people to know, but he's saying it in such a way that they can't possibly know. And so it's just, it's a very interesting look at this character. A, a, a slightly different look than the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal, um, who comes across as a little bit more, uh, I don't know, may, deranged maybe, a little bit more um, uncouth, but not in a like, like in a desperate sort of way, like because he's been in prison for so long. I mean, it makes sense as a character. Speaking of the prestige of this television, though, Gillian Anderson is a guest star on this show. She plays Hannibal's therapist. Um, so there's a little bit of an X-Files call out there. Eddie Izzard guest, has a guest spot on this. She plays Dr. Abel Gideon, um, who is another serial killer. Gina Torres is in a couple of episodes of this show. She plays Mrs. Jack Crawford. Uh, Ral Esparza uh, plays Frederick Chilton, who those of you who have watched The Silence of the Lambs will know his character as the head of the Baltimore Baltimore Home for the Criminally Insane. For those of you who don't know Ral Esparza, he is obviously a big Broadway star, but he also played Rafael Barba for several seasons on Law & Order SVU. So he is not he is somebody who is part of this sort of criminal TV show legacy. So, yeah, there's a lot going on for this show. I recommend it highly if you like gothic atmospheres. If you don't like the idea of Silence of the Lambs, you actually might like Hannibal because it is a very different tone from the movie, even though it has some of the same characters. The only complaint that I have is that sometimes there were storylines that didn't need to exist. And that's my complaint for... Oh, gosh. Most of television. Any show that's... (laughs) Any show that's 45 minutes to an hour long runtimes for their episodes often have characters that don't make sense. And I get it if you need something to happen later in the season and you need a character and you want to develop them. I get that. But you have to make that character as fascinating as your other characters. Otherwise, I don't care. So that would be my one complaint about this season. I'm curious to see if they'll fix it in the next season. Also, queer, queer gaze. The queer gaze. That's that's all I'll say. <laughs> Overall, do you do you like it? Do you, or, uh, do you recommend it? Like, let's just go ahead and cut yes. to it. 
Yeah, no, I recommend it for anybody who likes gothic stuff, anyone who likes serial killers. I think you'll really appreciate this. All the acting is just spot on fantastic. If you like procedurals, you probably won't like this. If you're looking for something that's formulaic, this is not for you. But if you're interested in character studies and anything that I've said so far, this is pretty fantastic television. Okay. Uh, well, due to time constraints, I think that we should just kind of skip over this week's discussion question because we are being fan servicey towards Ginger and elating the wonderful, wonderful series Hannibal, which uh, I believe I forced Ginger to watch. So it's always great when someone responds so positively to a recommendation of mine. Uh, just want to say real quickly, hey, there's been a lot of uh, stuff coming out about Joss Whedon. That sucks because we were fans of Buffy um, or are fans of Buffy. I don't I don't know uh, what to say. How, how do you guys feel about this? I'm still a fan of Buffy because more than one person made Buffy. That's how I'm choosing to sort of look at it. But I am not a fan, obviously, of what Joss Whedon did. I find it incredibly problematic. And I feel like we're going to be sorting out our feelings about his legacy for years to come. Tessa and I have talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. And one of the things that comes out of this is you can, I think there may be more options, but there are three main options here. Is is one, you can stop watching, listening to, being a part of works that have been created by a creator. You can just go, that's it. It's over. The problem with that is what Tessa just said. The second option is to excuse a creator based on uh, historicism. It's harder to do with Joss Whedon, but we look at people throughout history and, and can say, well, it was a different time. That's also problematic because, you know, take for instance, slavery. Slavery is always bad. I don't care if people were doing it back then. If it was just the way of life, it's bad. You should not do it now or ever, or especially in the past. Or three, you can try your best to separate art from artist. Really quickly, the one that Tessa and I have talked about a lot, and many, 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 many people have talked about, is Alfred Hitchcock. And over the next few weeks, uh, Tessa and I are going to be watching two older Hitchcock films, Saboteur and Shadow of a Doubt. I love Hitchcock's films partially because of his obsession with the wrong man, with being accused of something that you didn't do, having to face punishment for something that you are not responsible for. But the other thing that Hitchcock is perhaps most famous for that is the most problematic is his obsession with blondes. And it is well known that he terrorized Kim Novak, Janet Lee. Grace Kelly, and Tippi Hedren specifically, who fought back and was subject to the most abhorrent behavior by him. Alfred Hitchcock is absolutely somebody who, as a person, should be canceled. But man, if you give up all of those films, you're giving up an entire film school education. And so, how do you separate those two? I don't know. It's hard. I don't have the answer for that, but I think you have to. I think you have to be able to find a way to hold creators responsible for what they did, regardless of when they did it and what the cultural sensibility at the time was, but also be able to appreciate art. There's a limit, but there is some negotiation there. And I think that's important that we're going to have to start doing that with Joss Whedon. Well, I think, too, it is going to have to depend on create on a creator-by-creator basis, because there are situations, like I said with Buffy, where it's like, this was not made just by Joss Whedon. There were a lot of people who wrote for Buffy. There were a lot of people who worked on Buffy. And, you know, you don't want to discount the legacy of those people either. But there are also creators, I always think of Woody Allen, who I have never liked, who their sins are sort of publicly played out in their art. And so it's very hard for me to watch any Woody Allen because all I can see is his obsession with like young women and all of those other things in his arts, especially. And I think that depends person by person, too. You know, there are some people who probably have different associations with Annie Hall than I do. So I, I think that it's it's tricky. 
Um, I, I'd love to hear from our listeners on this, actually, because I, I think there are a lot of answers to this question that you've posed us, Andy. Yeah, yeah. It's always uh, something like uh, for for me, one of the the big things is someone like Roman Polanski, where enjoying his art or purchasing his art is actually actively making it so he's still evading justice for what he did. And that's uh, another interesting part of it. Um, but yeah, this is uh, a bit depressing and it's a very complex discussion and I'd rather have a kind of a more nuanced version of this. I just wanted to, you know, comment on the and Joss. Yep. Cool. Uh, screw you, buddy. And, and now for a lighter note, Sam, when you watched the film that you watched this week, I feel like there was like one of those like sounds that you get on the Xbox when you get an achievement, like the bloom sound over your head. Sam, what achievement did you unlock this week? So this week I unlocked the achievement Goldeneye. Watch all 24 Bond films. So, of course, there are 25. There are 25 completed films. But thanks to the globe's number one serial killer at the moment, COVID-19, we have yet to see the ironically more so everyday titled film No Time to Die. Now, uh, I've heard this is the best Bond. That is incorrect. Roger Moore, without a shadow of a doubt, is the worst Bond ever. Without a doubt doubt we're gonna get hate mail from the roger moore fan club i think roger moore is a wonderful person and a wonderful actor and from all accounts a terribly good sport that does not change so i the only two bond films i had not seen are 1983's octopussy and 1985's a view to a kill i was so enraged by Four Year Eyes Only, which I had not seen in its entirety, that I rage quit. And they just hung out there as the only two I had never seen for years. Uh, Tessa and I rewatched... I I rewatched Tessa Watch for the first time, the Sean Connery films last year. We wrote about them on The Pop Culturist. This year, we did the Roger Moore era, which contains seven movies. At the end of Roger Moore's tenure, there have been 14 Bond films. Seven were made by Roger Moore, six were made by Sean Connery, and one was made by or made with George Lazenby. So, Roger Moore is the reigning champion with most Bond films. Now, it's interesting. In the first 20, I believe, two years of Bond as a film character, there were 14 films. Since 1985, So we're talking 36 years at this point. There have been 11. So the output really started to slow down. Could you uh, remind us of the Roger Moore era real quick? This is the last one of the Roger Moore era. Remind us of the tenure so far. The road so far. (laughs) Okay, Andy, this is why Moore is the worst Bond. This is reason number one. 1973's Live and Let Die is remembered very fondly and especially fondly for the Paul McCartney song, Live and Let Die. However, this is a film that is based on American and Caribbean racism. It also fetishizes voodoo. It is a terrible, reprehensible idea of a thing, and it is Roger Moore's introduction to the series. 1974 gets worse somehow with The Man with the Golden Gun, which is extremely Orientalist. And moreover, it's just plain stupid. Both of these films have a Louisiana parish sheriff who is the most offensive person and a terrible stereotype. They just do all the awful things in these first two movies. I was literally buried under a blanket while watching this saying, please make it stop over and over again. So we follow those two up with 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, which does have a fair bit of Middle Eastern Orientalism. And that's bad. However, as the series finally leans into the Cold War, which is when it's at its strongest, we get James Bond's Russian counterpart, Agent Triple 
ex. Even Ringo Starr married a Bond girl. Wait, is that odd job? Because everyone who picked odd job and Goldeneye for the Nintendo 64 is a cheater. Okay, you're you're off on the wrong track already. We haven't even gotten to that yet. Agent Triple X, Barbara Bach, super soldier, spy, romance, romancer, I would say womanizer, but she's a manizer, I guess. Um, but she is in every way James Bond's opposite. We also get the embarrassment of riches. We also get the uber henchman Jaws. Jaws. What would happen if someone decided to cosplay as the shark from Jaws? I contend, by the way, that Idris Elba's character in Hobbs versus Shaw is actually a throwback to Jaws. And if you don't believe me, where do we get to see the electronic implant? That's right, in his grill. 1979 brings us Moonraker, also known as Bring Me Star Wars. You remember Jeff Bezos screaming, bring me Game of Thrones? This is what every studio was like after 1977. Moonraker is James Bond goes to space. But seriously, WTF eugenics. This is such a stupid movie, but it does have Jaws, so that's cool. Jaws is the best part of any James Bond movie that he that that he's in. I, I stand by it. He's hilarious. The joke where he just like is in these situations where he should die, but keeps trying to kill Bond anyway is just priceless. I, I do want to point out that I've just been trying to make up the lyrics for the song Manizer for Weird Al as a uh, parody of uh, Womanizer by Britney Spears. Let's it's, hear it. I, I don't have it. I, I'm working on it. Weird Al, call me. We're going to make some money. Okay, so we turn hard into the 80s with For Your Eyes Only. By the way, people apparently didn't like Moonraker because it was stupid. So they decided to go back to formula. And by formula, it's a little of this and it's a little of that. Everything you have seen in a previous James Bond movie exists in For Your Eyes Only, except this one takes in takes place in Greece, and the cold open of the movie sacrifices the main antagonist of the film as a visual gag middle finger to the person who actually owns the rights to that character. The people who make James Bond are petty AF, you guys. And Topol doesn't even sing. That's right. 1983 brings us Octopussy, the first film I had not seen. It's the second best of the Roger Moore era. If I haven't made that clear, The Spy Who Loved Me is the best one, but Octopussy is the second best. It involves smuggling and nukes and, uh, you know, frankly, the plot's a little incomprehensible, but it doesn't matter. We're dealing with Russia. We're dealing with the KGB and characters are used pretty well in it. And that brings us to the film of today, which is 1985's A View to a Kill, where Christopher Walken tries to destroy Silicon Valley to drive up profits of his own microchips. And if I made that movie sound like a coherent plot, it isn't. But that's actually what it's supposed to be about. Now, is this also a prequel to the Matthew McConaughey film A Time to Kill? It, it is, in fact, not. Okay. Um, and, and Samuel L. Jackson is also definitely not in this film. So you just listed off the entirety of the Roger Moore era. How do you feel about Roger Moore as Bond? I guess you've already told us that, but why do you feel that way about Roger Moore? Exhibit B. So Roger Moore was always under consideration to play Bond from the very beginning. The reason that he didn't was that he was a prolific TV actor in shows such as The Alaskans, Maverick, and The Persuaders, but he's best known for The Saint, which ran from 1962 to 1969, which you will note are the Sean Connery years. That show ran for 118 episodes. It was, you guessed it, a spy thriller. Moore played a character named Simon Templar. You guys. This will repeat itself. When Timothy Dalton is picked to play Bond over Pierce Brosnan, who was involved with the TV show Remington Steel. So, Roger Moore's a great guy. Class act. He is old by the time we get to View to a Kill. On the day of release for View to a Kill in 1985, Roger Moore is 57 years old. Now, that's fine. You know. 
I, I don't want Hollywood to start discriminating against old men. We'd have no more movies. But let's talk about the other stars of this movie. Grace Jones, 80s it girl, who plays Mayday, a great villain, is only 37. So 20 years younger. Okay. Tanya Roberts, who plays Stacey Sutton, the main Bond girl of the movie, is 29 at the time of this. For reference, Tanya Roberts is Donna's mom from That 70s Show. So, That 70s Show is made in the late 90s. And at that time, Tanya Roberts plays a believable middle-aged mom to a teenage girl from the 70s. But I'm not done blowing your mind yet. Allison Duty, who plays another character in this movie called Jenny Flex, is 19 at the time of release. She is Elsa from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, by the way, which I'll come back to in just a second. Lois Maxwell, Miss Moneypenny. Moneypenny, who has been there from the very, 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 very beginning. And it's clear she is too old for Bond. Because they have introduced a younger secretary for him to flirt with now. She is Lois Maxwell, the same age as Roger Moore. And I don't want to just pick on the women here. Christopher Walken, 15 years younger than Roger Moore. He's only 42 at the time of this film. But I'm going to take it one level further. We're going to go full rant on this. Let's talk about Indiana Jones for a minute. Sean Connery, the original James Bond, plays Indiana Jones' father in 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Sean Connery is three years younger than Roger Moore. That's right. The person who replaced Sean Connery is older than Sean Connery. In 1989, Sean Connery is 59 years old. That's, that's about what we would expect of Indiana Jones' dad at that point. Harrison Ford is only 12 years younger than Indiana Jones. So, or sorry, Harrison Ford is only 12 years younger than Sean Connery. So that's actually not going to work age-wise. But Harrison Ford is 47. Allison Duty, who I mentioned is the love interest from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, was 19 in 1985. So she's just a little bit older by the time we get to 1989. She is playing the love interest of Harrison Ford, whose father is Sean Connery, who's three years younger than the person she is supposed to be attracted to, Roger Moore. This is ridiculous. Ridiculous. You can almost hear Roger Moore, like, panting and talking about his joints as he runs upstairs in this movie. Putting aside Roger Moore's age, how was he? He's fine. He's fine. He, he's game. He does all the things. He does the stuff to the best of his ability. Which doesn't change the fact that this movie is stupid. Why is it stupid? Well, I'll tell you. Eon Productions, helmed by Albert Broccoli and nepotism-embodied Michael G. Wilson, who also has a writing credit for this film, are idiots. Idiots. Never should be in charge of this franchise. It's terrible, it's bad, and I hate it. Is this movie about horses? Is this movie about fault lines and earthquake science? Is it about microchips? Microchipped horses causing the... Uh... The fault lines to break. Come on. That's actually what it's about. Wait, what? <laughs> sort of. That don't, don't. You don't. And also, this movie features dirigibles. And I know what you're thinking. What's a dirigible? Well, I'll tell you. A dirigible can be an airship or a zeppelin. Or <laughs> so dirigibles were big deals back in the 1930s. Of course, the Hindenburg really kind of finished that off for everybody. Also prominently featured in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. No ticket. Now, here's the thing about dirigibles. The final set piece of this movie involves one. I need you to know that dirigibles are usually powered by hydrogen or helium. If you ever watch this movie, I want you to think, where did the gas come from? Where's the gas? And when it explodes, it should, it should really explode. It shouldn't do what that just did. It should definitely take out the whole darn Golden Gate Bridge, and everybody around it, including Bond, would be dead. That's how gas works. Now, also, Christopher Walken's character, who's super fun, Max Zorin, 
Black Widow. This dude is Black Widow. He is a genetically engineered Russian super spy sent over to the West to ruin the West. We know this not because the film explains it particularly well, but because at the beginning of the film, James Bond escapes from Siberia on a broken broken ski equipment again because that's somehow a part of the James Bond universe. But California Girls is playing while he does it? This is so stupid. So was it bad? Actually, like I said before, it's a pretty good movie. Christopher Walken and Grace Jones do really good work in this movie. Like, it's, it's actually kind of fun. As bad as this movie is, I think we enjoyed it more than most of the Roger Moore era. And by the way, Paul McCartney is known for writing an absolute banger of a Bond song. But Simon Le Bon and the boys from Duran Duran knocked it out of the park with From a View to a Kill. So this movie's got some things going for it. Even though it's terrible. Really, really quickly, we're going to play a mini game of rank, rank That List. How would you rank the, the Bond films again? Go through your ranking order? Of, of, the, of the Roger Moore era? Yeah, I'm sorry, of the Roger Moore era. All right. And I think Tessa and I have consensus on this. We've discussed it. So number seven. The man with the golden gun, the one with the slide whistle corkscrew jump, but also has Christopher Lee. Number six, the horribly, horribly racist, live and let die. Number five, the pastiche rehash for your eyes only. Number four, bring me Star Wars, Moonraker. Number three, a view to a kill. Number two, octopusy. And number one, the spy who loved me. So a view to the kill is is third on that list. So you did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. So you obviously have a very complicated relationship with Bond. Why do you keep watching these movies? What is your relationship with Bond? Do you think that they're bad, but you enjoy them? I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think it's ironic that Billie Eilish has written the theme song for the latest Bond. I really think this may come down to a uh, generational thing in some aspects. So, spy thrillers are my jam. I do not like serial killers. I do not like true crime. I like spy thrillers. One of the reasons for this is I am a child of the Cold War. I am a, cho- I am a child of the Cold War uh, in the fact that most of when I was alive was detente between U.S. and Russia. And I remember when the Soviet Union fell. So I was not hide under the desk child of the Cold War. I was not Vietnam Cold War, but I was that last part of it. So the Cold War is something that very much resonates with me that it doesn't with people much younger than me. And that's fine. That's good. You like to see it. I have, I've studied the Cold War. I think it's really interesting. I'm interested in the James Bond novels, as problematic as they are. They're a very interesting swath of um, history. Um, it's worth noting, by the way, that Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, are spies in arms together and are good pals. They're part of the Baker Street Irregulars. It's just a fascinating part of history. But franchises like this one that have existed so long, I don't think they work anymore. It's, there's a difference between this and trying to constantly reboot a property like Silence of the Lambs. Back before the internet, back before, even before cable TV with so many channels. Back before all these things, it was just seeing that James Bond will return in two years gives me some sense of continuity in my pop culture. Things move more slowly. And so like seeing James Bond will return in is really, really cool. And so you you build these things and it's, it's like Lucy with the football. So there's this thing called Charlie Brown, Andy, that you don't watch. But every so often, Lucy holds a football for him, and he thinks he's going to kick the football, but she always takes it away at the last minute. It's a really existential comment on society, but you don't read Charlie Brown. Now, Bond, the next Bond movie might be a good movie. That's how I always, always feel. And very often, I am not rewarded for this. There is so much potential for this character. This character is awesome, can stand the test of time, gadgets, you know, fighting crime, whatever's happening. It's really, really cool. But it needs constant revision. That's what happens when you try to build a character around an archetype. You have to change with the times. And every time they try to do it, they screw up. Except... 
the few times where Charlie Brown gets to kick the football. Golden Eye. Casino Royale. But every time they do that, immediately the next movie is a giant piece of flaming trash. It happens so often. I really hope No Time to Die is a good one. And frankly, if they stop the series at 25, it might be for the best. But I'll tell you, if we can get Idris Elba or uh, Charlize Theron to play the next Bond, I'd be psyched. So, it's so fun to get into franchises that span 50 plus years. Even though it's mostly full of faults, there's always that hope that something will be good. So, if you're a lovable loser like me, and you like to hope for the best and be prepared for the worst, have I got a pop culture franchise for you. Now, I want to bring up, Sam, that there's another very famous franchise that's very, that's, you know, over 50 years old and you can use as a way to gauge general pop culture. I, I, I'd really recommend it. It's called Godzilla. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you guys are going to be talking about uh, the Godzilla franchise, uh, Kaiju in general, uh, in the next few weeks here. I'm excited for that. And it's it's fun to hear what other people are interested in in terms of these long-running franchises, even if it doesn't hook me in the same way. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to watch and hear you guys talk about. I just, like you said, I think, you know, these these franchises bring a lot of people a lot of joy and, you know, it's good times. By the way, speaking of old things that old people like, did you guys know that Taylor Swift is older than all of the Beatles when the Beatles broke up? Who are the Beatles? Yeah. So, Andy, what did you watch? And what the heck is with the name of this thing? I know that this is going to be a, a, a shocker to people, but I watched another anime uh, that I've, like, I've been doing for the past few weeks. This one is called Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl, Senpai. Look at you, Andy, doing an unintentional theme month. That's right. It's a theme month. It's a random theme month of weirdly named things. Last week I did My Next Life is a Villainous, colon, All Routes Lead to Doom, which, by the way, I was correct. Ginger did indeed enjoy it. But we're talking about Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl Senpai, which, yes, is a weird name. Now, what do you two think of when you think of the title Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl Senpai? I mean, all I can think of is I, I'm I'm probably taking this way too literally, but all I can think of is like a girl in a bunny suit, like a Playboy bunny. Okay. Okay, so I'm gonna go out on a limb. Judging from the word senpai, I am guessing this is like a master. A, this is a story about a master and apprentice training. Could be martial arts. Could not be. But I imagine the 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 title is a pull quote. Where the person, the the apprentice is yelled at, Rascal does not dream up bunny girl. This was probably the wittiest, funniest, uh, most heartwarming and heartfelt anime series I have watched. And this is based on a series of light novels. And if you didn't listen to me last week, talk about light novels. Light novels are basically just very short, uh, easy to read Japanese books, but Tessa, you're surprisingly correct. So the main character of this, who's a high school student, wakes up and sees that he wrote in his journal that yesterday he met a bunny girl and the bunny girl's name was blank. The bunny girl's name just has been erased from his, his journal entry. And that's, he goes about his day. You find out that Sakata has some weird rumblings about him at school. People don't like him. His best friend's girlfriend keeps mentioning that by being friends with him, it's bringing down her boyfriend's reputation. The school has a former child star named Mai at it, who's, you know, just kind of a very famous person. And the main character Sakata goes to the public library where he sees Mai walking around the public library in uh, as Tessa described it a Playboy bunny girl costume nailed it so alright 
little genre analysis time. Is this a singular story or like okay, smaller we'll, stories? We'll we'll, uh, we'll 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 get to that. Um, but this is a kind of a mix of both. So it's he sees her walking around this, you know, in the scandalous outfit, like this holy crap. The tabloids would be destroying her, but nobody's paying attention to her. Nobody sees her. And he talks to her and she's actually surprised that uh, Sakada can in fact see her. And this is where the show takes a very different kind of turn. It introduces the concept of adolescent syndrome, which is essentially a you know plot device where teenagers, all the anxiety, fear, everything that they put out into the world has some kind of weird sci-fi effect. Uh, it manifests itself in, in some way where just certain things happen. And the way that the child star, my, her adolescent syndrome manifests itself is the further away she gets from school. People don't see her. They look right through her. They forget about her, you know, as, as pointed out in the journal entry earlier, it's just blank. And as, as the first couple episodes, or I guess this is basically broken up into four different stories that are three episodes long, each involve a specific instance of this adolescent syndrome and, and kind of how it affects a singular person and, and how that's kind of how that how that kind of plays out um you know as it gets more and more severe as these uh the small arc goes on the people really start to forget her even at school she disappears and it becomes this this thing where sakata is the only one who can see her he's the only one who's thinking of her and they they do give a a kind of just silly quantum explanation of how She's uh, not being seen, and when she's not being seen, she doesn't exist. But it, it comes to this point where she's very clearly starting to get disturbed by the fact that she's going to disappear. People are going to forget her, and she's going to be gone. And you can definitely see the line where this is the adolescence um, desire to be left alone, but also fear that you're going to be left alone. It's this beautiful, heart-wrenching story where you feel for her and it even culminates in uh them kind of starting to date and let me tell you the dialogue that sakta spits out and the dialogue that mai spits out in return is probably the tightest wittiest best dialogue i've seen from an anime i this makes me just think of an indie movie. This is on a level of uh, the before trilogy. This is incredibly funny, poignant, back and forth. I could, could never do any of these lines justice by trying to justify them. And then the story's resolved, and another moment of adolescent syndrome happens. And you find out that Sakata knows about adolescent syndrome because his little sister. Uh, was bullied at school and eventually that bullying manifested itself uh, in a, such a way where Sakata was put in the hospital and there, this is such a, a wonderful look at the problems that teenagers face and the fears that they have and how it can just be manifested in different ways it's it, it's a wonderful wonderful watch and it covers the first five books in the series. There's a movie that covers the next one. I'm going to be watching the movie as soon as possible. This is fantastic. Okay, so I want to ask you a little bit about anime in general in just a second. But before we did that, before we do that, last week, uh, we had a list of yours, uh, some of your favorite anime. Was this on that list? This was not on that list because I had not finished this anime and i i'm gonna tell you uh this this is both a feel good but it is also it has that indie vibe to it there are 
emotional stakes and those emotional stakes are very serious. So it stacks up with the others that you listed. Uh, I, so I think I liked it more than the ones I listed for, for the most part. However, it's also not the same thing, right? The list that I, I gave you uh, put out there was for feel good animes. And this is a very feel good, but there, again, there are real emotional stakes here. So clearly anime is a very large, I mean, it's not even really a genre. It's, a, it's an entire art form. Feel I have a huge imposter syndrome talking to you about this because I, I did live in Japan for a year quite a while back, and I am just fundamentally not interested at all in anime, and it disappoints Tessa a lot. If anybody out there wants to talk about 1995 J-pop like Sharon Q and TRF and, you know, Mr. Children, just, you know, call me but or tweet at me. But you've watched a lot of this, and, and, and I know Tessa's watched a bit too. Tell me what draws you to this content. What draws you to this? Again, it's not a genre. It's an art form. Okay. I think, I think people, listeners, will pick up on this, that I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of things that are different, uh, the hidden gems. And there's this concept of like a cultural, fil- uh, cultural filter, right? Where you only really hear about the good output, right? Yeah, or, or the further away you get from a culture, the quality of work has to be better and better to get uh, picked up by other cultures, right? You can kind of see this also with the British TV. Everyone's like, oh, British TV is so much better. Well, that's because we get, we know about The Office. We don't know about, you know, the the 20 British shows that that uh, blow. And also, I don't really think The British Office is that great, but that's a completely different thing. Now I'm just thinking of a show like the show before The Office, like The Pool Cleaners, or you know some some like or, terrible show. Uh, it, it's actually the show that Martin Freeman did after The Office before he went to movies. It it is terrible. It's like a it's like a Z rate Home Improvement. It's bad. <laughs> right. So 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 when like anime pops up, uh, one it's it's probably going to be a little bit better than than the standard stuff that that comes out in Japan, especially when it hits my ears. Um, I do go seeking this out, but at the same time, I most of the time when I gamble on an anime, it's probably going to lean to pretty good. And also because this is a different culture, you're getting different things. You're getting weirder premises. I mean, the titles themselves are, are weirder and you're finding out, more about how this is growing as a as a genre and uh yeah just lately it's been really appealing to me and i've been kind of catching up on some of the better stuff from the last years that i've just missed out on and and i will say as an aside it's always better to experience shows in their uh native art form habitat country of origin instead of waiting for you know, Hollywood to remake it, <clears throat> Train to Busan. So who do you recommend this show to? Uh, really, I, I think anyone who enjoys the kind of indie romance movies. Now, now there is a, a heavy romance, and this is probably one of the most realistic feeling relationships uh, as it develops and uh, grows that I've seen in an anime. In a lot of cases with anime, the relationship is very superficial, and they the characters like don't even flirt. And Sakura and Mai flirt all the time, and it is just witty and incredibly funny. I, I mean, I reckon I recommend this to people who like good things. I I, <laughs> I think that you should give this a shot. It is on Hulu. Rascal does not dream of Bunny Girl Senpai, which, by the way, just the translation and the quality of translation of that title is is great because the actual literal t- title is something like "Teenage Pig Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl Senpai." And and like going to Teenage Pig to Rascal, like the quality of translation and dialogue is just so high and it's so ridiculously funny. And of course, being Japanese, being a season long, that is 13 episodes. Also, the opener, the opening music is just puts you in the right mood. And uh, if I'm feeling uh, daring, you might hear a three second clip of the music uh, just to give you a feel. It is... It is fascinating. I I just truly love this, and I I'm like going to watch the movie the second I get two hours free. 
All right. Uh, next week, we are joined by Teja of Actia Age Podcast. Yay, we're excited. Where can you find us? Sam, you go first since you're not near the mic. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach nine. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. All right. You can find me on Twitter at Andy Noted, A-N-D-Y-N-O-T-E-D. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts about what we talked about today, anything you'd like to see us talk about on future episodes, and anything else pop culture related. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, go get that monkey off your backlog.